morning, Bethel. Good morning. Good to see all of you here on this beautiful Sunday that God has given to us. We are in week five of our series, Famous Last Words. And we have been looking at the words that Jesus spoke on the cross and the words that he spoke on resurrection. Today, we're going to look at the last words that he spoke prior to ascending to heaven. After his resurrection, he lived on this earth for 40 days, appearing to his disciples and others. And so he, um, we're going to look today as he was ascending to heaven, the last words that he gave to us on this earth. Now, American cinema has had many movie plots and storylines built around the last words of an individual. Think about how many movie plots you can hear or you can think of that someone whispered something into someone's ear. and What did they say? Who was the murderer as they were dying? They were whispering out who it was that murdered them or where the treasure is buried. You know, all of these different, these plots. You know, if, if you were to know that your, your days on earth were numbered and you were coming to an end and you had some parting words to leave with your friends or family, what would you tell them? What would be your last words on this earth? Have you ever thought about that? You know, we, of course, would want to tell our, our, our spouse, our kids, our family, how much we love them. But beyond that, what would you, what would you tell them? You know, Jesus' last words actually provide the purpose in life for Christians. You know, I would think, you know, Jesus had an eternity to think about the last words that he would leave for his followers on this earth. So I would say today's message, listening to what Jesus tells us, is very, very important. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, and we'll start out in in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, honestly, what he says from this point forward, think about this. All authority has been given to me. Whatever comes next, you can push all of your chips in on the table. Why? Because Jesus has authority over life. He's proven it over death. And he has Heaven and earth, all authority has been given to him. I mean, who else tells a guy named Lazarus to come up out of the grave after he's been in the grave, wrapped in cloth, grave clothes, and he comes back after being in the grave? Who else could himself raise himself up from the grave? He rebuked the storms. He had all authority, God in the flesh. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Governmental authority? Yeah. All of the crazy stuff that we see happening in our world today through governments, all authority has been given to Jesus. What about the authority in nature? Jesus says, yeah, that's mine too. You've seen me calm the storms. You've seen me control nature. It's it's mine. That also obeys me. All authority has been given to me. Then watch what he does with this authority as he commands his people to go out. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We'll stop right there. 
for just a moment in our text. This idea can be summed up as, as you go. As you go throughout life, living life, doing your normal daily life, make disciples. This isn't about you necessarily loading up your car and going to Siberia to make disciples, although there are people that are called to go to the ends of the earth and do that. But rather, as you live your life, the purpose behind your life, what you've been created for is to make disciples. I think some important things can be found if we watch how intricately God is involved in your life. Each and every one of you sitting here today, God has been intricately working in your life to bring you to this point. From the neighbors that you have, the people that you've interacted with work, at work, at school, talking across the cubicle wall, at the ball field, each one of those relationships, God has been intricately working in your life to bring you to this point. Let's see what the psalmist says in Psalm 139, verse 13. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This passage to me is just spectacular when you're looking at the psalmist writing this to, to the Lord. And here's what he just said. He said, God knit you in your mother's womb. He has two kinds of pieces on what exactly God did in there. One, God put together your spiritual form while you were in your mother's womb. How we're built, when the psalmist was writing this back in that day and time, they had no concept of DNA and how all of that played together to make us physically how we are today, how the mother's DNA and the father's DNA comes together to make the new, new human being. They had no idea of all of the science behind that back in that time. But according to this text, when God was knitting me together in my mother's womb, he knew the days that he had for me, knowing what he was going to call me to do, knowing what he was going to call me to be, and he began to weave you and I together way back when. It's amazing to think about. Think of a more spectacular piece is that he mentions this unformed substance here. Here's what I think is going on in this text. What I think he's talking about is your aptitudes and how you're wired. Each and every one of us are wired differently in this room. In the middle of this, here's what I know to be true in this room. You're drawn to things and you don't know why. You don't know why you like certain things. You're good at things and you've just always been good at them and you don't know why. From the time you're little children, there are some kids that just, just give me the ball and they're spectacular athletes but the next person can't get one foot in front of the other to play sports without tripping over them. Others, some kids don't want the ball at all. They want to color. They want to paint. They want to sing. They want to learn the piano. They're drawn, drawn toward the arts in life. Some of you are really good at business. 
you have this intrinsic high entrepreneurial attitude that you're going to overcome, that you're going to get it done. You're very linear. You're very type A. If I were to come in your house and move a coaster on the table, you would know immediately and it would drive you nuts. Those kind of people are kind of fun to mess with sometimes if you go into their house or go into their garage. You're just wired that way and you don't know why. It's literally you have been wired a specific way. And according to the psalmist, it's the way the Lord formed you in your mother's womb. The the Lord had an act and a part in the way that you were made. That means you have been uniquely wired by God. And that's awesome. That's awesome to think that we are wired so uniquely, so differently by our Creator. Not only have you been uniquely wired by God, but God also says you have been uniquely placed by Him as well, placed by God. In Acts chapter 17, here's what it says. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now listen to this part of the verse. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And this is huge. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. God not only placed us on this earth and uniquely put us where he wants us to be, our days are numbered. The only person who knows how many breaths we will take, how many sunrises we will see, is God Almighty. Because he has determined the number of days that we will live. So you may have been a surprise to mom and dad when she took that test. (laughs) But you're not a surprise to God. God knew exactly what he was doing when he created you. God has uniquely wired you and he has uniquely placed you in this moment. He has given you the gifts, the aptitudes, the skills, and the desires and put you in this moment right here to bring him honor and to bring him glory through your life. Verse, and here's what it would say is at the end, that men might seek him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. That's how they finish that Acts chapter 17. That men might seek him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. Man, to me, that's such a powerful passage to think about. That God has uniquely placed us so that, as the verse says, that men might seek him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. How is that possible, that God is not far from any of us? The meaning of you living in your neighborhood goes well beyond you simply living in that neighborhood. Who is in the office cubicle next to you, whoever you share workstation with, that goes beyond just your work. Why? Why do we know that? Because of what we just read here in the scripture that God is the one who placed them there next to you. It's God who orchestrates 
our lives. You see, one of the horrible things about our cultures were, were so many places around uh, businesses are trying to get you to find purpose in your work. And here's the thing that I'm hoping you can see through this lie. You know that there, you can find meaning and purpose in your job and through their mission statement, but you're not going to find your ultimate life's purpose to the company that you work for. So many people you know, have this misconceived idea that they're going to name the building after you whenever you retire. That's not gonna happen. The day you retire, they're putting that job posting out on the website and they'll forget about you a week later. You know, we've, in the, the bank that I work for, one of the, the managers that I, I have worked with, he worked with the bank for 40 years. His wife was the treasurer on the board of directors or the executive committee for the bank for over a decade. And he retired back in December and no one even talks about him anymore. It's just, that's the way that it is. That's, that we don't find our purpose and our meaning in our work. You know, they might give you a watch, throw you a, a going away party, if it's a good company, but they're gonna replace you. And as soon as they replace you, it's on to the next thing and they'll forget about you. Three or four year late, you know, months later, no one's going, oh, you remember when so-and-so worked here? No, that's not the way it is. They're grinding it out, grinding their 40 years or longer, however long it takes to, to fill their 401k, to, to finish out their pension. And on the day you retire, the board of directors is not going to you know, gather around you and mourn. The company is not going to fall apart. It's going to keep moving along. And you know that to be true. So why are we trying to find our purpose and our meaning in our jobs? You know, I've, as a, a manager at work, I've had to lay people off. And for people that find their, try to find their purpose and meaning in their, in their work, it's devastating. It's devastating for them whenever you have to give them that news that are bought hook, line, and sinker into this job is where I find my purpose and my meaning. What brings purpose to the workplace is our understanding that we have been uniquely wired and uniquely placed because men will seek and find him because he is not far from any of us, your neighbor. God is not far from them. Why? Because you're next door. Your coworker. God is not far from them. Why? Because you're over the cubicle wall. Students at school, God is not far from that student that's searching for meaning in life, that's struggling to get through the day. Why? Because you're in the desk next to them or the lunch table sitting next to them. Those other adults you sit at when your kids are playing soccer or baseball or flag football, God is near to them. Why? Because you are sitting next to them on the bleachers. God has uniquely placed them in your life. You see, we should never be bored because there is an eternal significance to everything in our life. Everything. And I want us to all see the world through these lenses. We need to embrace this in the community God has called us to here in South Orlando to herald the good news of a Savior, Jesus, who loves them, who died for them, as we talked about extensively last week, and who rose from the dead. People need to hear this good news. You know, God has placed all of us, if we look around hard enough, in these scenarios. And sometimes we need to look harder and do a better job of it. You know, I'm naturally introverted. 
You know, it's hard for me to get out and want to meet people. You know, I have to force myself to do that. You know, one of the ways that I do that is I, I reluctantly serve on the HOA board in our community. You guys laugh. I get blown up on Facebook sometimes because there's people parking on the street and I have nothing I can do about it. That's one of the ways I meet neighbors. You know, my wife serves on the PTO board here at the school and on the architectural review committee in the neighborhood to meet people, to draw them to Christ, to have that opportunity to say, God is not far from you. God has uniquely designed you, uniquely wired you, and uniquely placed you so men and women could seek and find him because he is not far from any of us. Why? Because he put you there. And that's awesome. How many people in your life have you overlooked that pesky neighbor next door? I've got one. I'm preaching to myself this morning. That coworker that you've avoided that student's a little different from you, that God has placed you there for a purpose, for a reason. He doesn't just stop there. He said, you know, think about it. As you go, make disciples of all nations. He keeps going, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, baptism is, is us publicly saying, I have followed Christ with my life. I, have, I believe that I'm a sinner. And as you're being buried, you're being buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his glorious resurrection. And when we, someone is dipped into the water, they are showing their union with Christ. They're showing that they are a follower of Christ. You know, we hope to sometime soon this summer have another baptism service for those that want to make that decision to follow Christ. Or maybe those of you that have made that decision, you said, Pastor, I've never been baptized. And I would love to do that. I would love to have that conversation with you. You see, when Christ died upon the cross, the beautiful thing that baptism shows is, I'm a sinner. Robert Hodges is a sinner. He took all of my sin. He took all of the wickedness of Robert Hodges. All of the unrighteousness of Robert Hodges, all of the doubts, all of my fears, they went into the ground with Christ. And so baptism signifies all of that being buried with Christ. And the resurrection being coming back up made new with Christ. When we get to the resurrection, I can now celebrate that he has given me new life. He has filled me with the Holy Spirit's power. He has enabled and emboldened obedience to the things of God. You know, things where I could not imagine obedience before. He has granted me the grace of obedience because of my union now with Christ. And he doesn't just stop there. Let's keep going in this verse. And this last component here is very important. Verse 20 says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This becomes interesting if you start to look at it and think about it because Jesus is telling his disciples go and make disciples like I've made you but these disciples have to teach these disciples to to follow all that Jesus taught them now just imagine how overwhelming that would have felt to them now they followed Jesus for two and a half years listening to him teach, listening to him with his authority, and how overwhelming that would have been to think, man, I can't teach like Jesus taught. 
Jesus took us and made disciples. How am I supposed to go do that? The expectation is that the disciples who are making disciples are also observing all he commanded. So I'm going to ask a question, and I'd like some feedback. Will you ever, in your life, get to the point where you are 100% following all that Jesus commanded? It's a trick question. No. No. You never will. Are you ever, in your life, going to have a 100% day? No. I can tell you, I've never ever even come close to a 100% day. Now that we've come to that agreement, let me, let's lean on it for just a minute. And this is huge for us to get this. Nothing is more crushing to Christian maturation and maturity than the idea that you're going to arrive or that you have arrived. Maybe you've met some religious person and maybe they call themselves a Christian and they walk around with their nose thumbed up at the rest of the world. This person's no fun to be around, is it? The pride in their heart, the judgment, the continual looking down around the rest of the world, there's someone who thinks that they have a 100% day. <laughs> and we know from scripture that that's not true. But that's not true. If you begin to think that way, you're putting a crushing weight on you and you'll walk around in this self-righteousness way that is just disgusting. And we don't ever arrive, we don't, do not ever have a 100% day on this earth until we get to, to heaven. Until then, our lives are marked by this continual, constant ethic of confession, repentance, reconciliation. Confession. God, I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against this person. God, I'm repenting of this. Help me turn away from this sin, and then reconciling before God and before that individual. We live our lives daily in this ethic. Confession, repentance, reconciliation. The problem that we have in our world today, and especially in the relationships that we have, is this is not modeled. And so relationships are superficial. Relationships are destroyed because we are sinful people and we're going to sin against each other. I'm going to sin against you as your pastor. And when that happens, please let me give, give me the opportunity to come and confess, repent, and let us reconcile that relationship to each other. Husbands and wives, you sin against each other probably daily, definitely weekly. You must confess, repent, and reconcile. Parents, as parents, my kids, I've sinned against them, and I've had to model this. We, as believers, must constantly model this ethic. You know, we could sit down and, and have a, a chat, and here's what I would know, is that there are individuals in your life that this ethic of confession, repentance, reconciliation that needs to take place right now, right now in your life. And here's some things I feel are, are really going, doing that we, that if I were to sit down with you and you were to think through, okay, pastor, here's some things in my life I know that are going really well. And here's some things in my life that I'm struggling with. As a part of the maturation process as being a believer, 
The Holy Spirit and God is going to work on those things in your life that you're struggling with right now. And once you get victory in that area of your life, it's not that you've arrived. A decade later, we could sit down and you could say, Pastor, I feel like I'm doing this really well, but I'm struggling here. And it's because God continually opens things in your eyes to see where you can become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. More and more areas of your life where you can be convicted to grow in. The, 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 the longer I'm a Christian, the older I get, the more sinful I realize my heart is. And the more areas of growth that I need. It's not that I ever get to the point where I've arrived. I never will get that point. And here's what I would tell you. Ten years from now, you're more likely to have more areas of your life that you realize, man, God is humbling me. God is working on me. And that's what happen every moment, every season of your life until God takes you home to glory. We never arrive. We never have a 100% day. Then that moment when God takes us home, there will no longer be a need to confess, repent, and reconcile because all things will be made new. And until that day, brothers, sisters, our lives as Christians are going to be continually marked by confession, repentance, and reconciliation. Now, there's probably a dozen texts I could take here on this idea of, of maturing in Christ, that God's hope for you and what Christ has paid for you on the cross is this ongoing maturing where you begin to trust the Lord more and more. You know, some of you here today are maybe even still looking at the Christian faith. Maybe you haven't even made that decision to trust and follow Christ. I would challenge you, take that next step. Take that next step of saying, God, I believe that you died upon a cross for my sins. God, I know that you have uniquely wired me and uniquely placed me because you have been drawing me to you for days, months, years. Take that next step and see how God works in your life. You know, there are things in our lives that we are all unhappy with. But as we hear the word, as we receive the word, and as we begin to grow, as we begin to see God work, God changes us. He changes our relationships. He changes our families. You know, you have this rhythm in the scriptures that God is, you know, that God's expectation is that you and I are maturing. We don't arrive ever to a place of 100%. And that gives us grace for where we find ourselves today. Because as I sin against you, and you sin against me, and you sin against each other, we all know that we're sinners. We all know that we're not perfect. And we all know that we need grace. We need grace with each other. God's expectation is not in this moment that you have arrived or that you're nailing it or that you're putting it all together. That's not his expectation. His expectation is that we're continually growing. Continually growing. That's part of this verse of making disciples. I love this last promise. This is the last thing that he says. And he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Isn't that comforting? I am with you always to the end of the age. To me, those are comforting last words to know that I'm not alone, that Christ is here, that Christ is with us through the Holy Spirit, to know that, that the one who has been given all authority in heaven on, on earth is with you always? 
Man, doesn't that not give you comfort to know that whatever boulder you have in your life, whatever big struggle you have in your life, the one that has all authority over heaven and earth is with you? Man, the one who can move mountains in your life is with you? Man, what greater encouragement could we leave today knowing that? What greater confidence could we have? In your neighborhood, concerning your neighbors, Jesus is there. In your workplace, Jesus is there. He has not abandoned us to do this on our own. Because if he had, we'd be pathetic. (laughs) I know I would be without Christ. All authority in heaven on on earth has been given to him. So as we go, let us tell the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us baptize. Then let us walk in this ongoing ethic of confession, repentance, and reconciliation. And may this mark our community of faith as we marvel at what God is doing. Let's marvel at what God is doing in your life, at what God is doing in your family, because it's amazing. This is our mission. This is our purpose in life, church. This is what God has called us to do. Let us pray. Thank you.